Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I'm joined today by Michelle Kelly Irving, Director of Research at the Center for Epidemiology and Population Health Research in the Faculty of Medicine at Paul Sabatier University in Toulouse, France. Michelle's an epidemiologist with extensive experience looking at health inequalities. Michelle's of Irish birth and her education included a bachelor's degree in biological and social anthropology at Britain's Durham University, a PhD in epidemiology from University College London, and she was accredited to supervise research by her current institution. Her prior positions include working as a research associate at the School for Policy Studies at the University of Bristol and as a tenured public health scientist and research fellow at the University Paul Sabatier, where she's been based in the south of France since 2007. I could make some quip about it being a tough life having to live in that part of the world. Michelle is broadly published and has served journals in in a number of uh, uh, ways. Michelle's conducted multiple grant-supported research projects and has examined many PhD candidates. We're not pushing back epidemiological boundaries. Our guest also enjoys spending time outdoors through her involvement in nature conservation and is engaged in advocating for climate justice. And she also makes time for her two teenage daughters. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Michelle Kelly Irving. It's great to have you with us. Lovely to be here. Thanks. So, Michelle, you're, you're a well-travelled academic from Ireland to England to France. Tell us about your literal and metaphorical journey into epidemiological research and your passion for equality in health. Yes, well, um, as you, you described, I'm a little bit mixed up identity-wise, um, born in Ireland, um, but I did grow up both in Ireland and in France, moving back and forth um, with my family because of my father's profession. Um, and I'm also a bit mixed up um, from a disciplinary point of view because uh, I um, studied anthropology, first of all, as you mentioned, at the University of Durham. And that's where, where I really became interested in how human health is influenced by our social and physical world. Um, and that drew me to um, go and, and carry out a PhD in the field of social epidemiology in uh, trying to understand how social factors affect health over the life course. Um, and I've really been doing that um, ever since in different forms. Um, I worked also as a research associate in, in the University of Bristol, where we were interested in connecting social inequality, poverty, measured through um, a human rights approach. Um, in understanding health inequalities. And then I've moved to France. We've been developing um, uh, work here on um, how health inequalities occur over the life course and through social to biological research um, since about 2007. And I lead a research team here on that topic and also on how health inequalities come about through the healthcare system and methodological developments, etc. So, well, thanks for that. Um, For the last 10 years, you've talked about social conditions and our biology. In fact, an article you authored last year assessed how social exposures are integrated in exposome research, a scoping review. 
This is fascinating. I mean, it's it was pretty new to me when I first came across this sort of stuff. And if my understanding is correct, environmental factors can affect the phenotype, who we are, and the genotype, our genetic code. Is, is that what the exposome is? Please enlighten us on this topic. Well, let me start by um, talking, first of all, a little bit about what we know regarding the connection between our social environment and our biology. And so in my research team and, and beyond, many other researchers have shown that social determinants, so things like measures of your social position, like your education, your social class, your income, are linked to our biology in such a way that a number of biomarkers have social patterns. Um, and we think this may explain to some extent why some diseases are socially patterned. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense in terms of adaptation. So humans are, are like all living creatures, adapting continuously to our environments. Um, but human environments are very much socially structured things. Um, with human um, environments being socially structured, it means that something like being exposed to air pollution is more likely to happen if you're from a, no, a poorer neighborhood, for example, um, because you live closer to industry or busy roads or because of your job. Um, and this social structure of our environment uh, can lead to the social patterning of the biological response from breathing in things like pollution, as I mentioned, or, or lots of other factors, which can then be related to disease processes. Other processes also occur along the stress response systems. So that's just to give you a, an overview of what's, what we think is going on that relates this social environment to biology. Um, regarding the exposome, well, so the exposome concept was developed roughly in about 2005 by Christopher Wilde. It's an idea that encompasses every exposure to which an individual is subject from conception to death. So as you can imagine, that's a huge number of ex potential exposures over the whole life course. Um, and I think the idea was really more like a complementary framework to that of the genome. So it was saying that all these exposures affect the phenotype. And yes, there can be effects on the genetic code through something like epigenetic factors, but it's really more of a complementary uh, framework to the, to, to the genome. Um, much of the research on the exposome has come from environmental epidemiology. So that's why I gave you the example of air pollution. It's that kind of research that's often framed within the exposome. And our scoping review showed that although there is a long-standing body of evidence on the social determinants of health affecting biology, these are rarely or not sufficiently considered in recent exposome literature, for example. So that's fascinating. How might those observations impact social and health policy? Well, it, it, that's an important point. Can, can, this under, can this affect social and health policy? Well, I think understanding that our social environment influences our biology may be rather important to consider, for example, within the healthcare system, um, simply by realizing that people are having to biologically adapt to their social environment, we can understand that it's a lot less likely to be that small part of biology, in other words, genetics, that explains observed differences in health between social groups 
but much more likely to be this sort of socially driven biological adaptation going on. And that, first of all, just considering that at all could be quite interesting in, in healthcare. And I would argue that we need to obviously prevent social inequalities from happening across the life course from the start. But then we also need to mitigate the risks later on by considering that people may not respond the same way to care or intervention or treatments um, because of these phenomena. But there is no magic bullet, unfortunately. These considerations are likely to vary across contexts. France is different to the UK in terms of the social environment, um, and, but it also varies in terms of pathologies. Are we talking about cardiovascular diseases, infectious diseases? Um, mental health outcomes. These things vary over time. So it's really about integrating that approach to considering social determinants within healthcare systems and as important in all policies from the get-go. So, um, yeah, I mean, some of these things are obvious, aren't they? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world where there was no poverty and where people had access to healthcare, but we don't, so we have to be creative, I guess. So a recent article you co-authored was entitled Falling Down the Rabbit Hole, Methodological, Conceptual and Policy Issues in Current Health Inequalities Research. Please tell us if I can channel my inner Alice. Uh, was this an adventure in Wonderland? It was in many ways. If, well, first of all, it was an adventure because with my, co- my co-authors and I, we met on Twitter, actually, through interactions on there, through talking about um, social inequalities and health. So it was an adventure from that point of view before Twitter sort of uh, became something different. <laughs> but, um, but secondly, yes, the metaphor of the, of the rabbit hole is really about how scientists and epidemiologists can sometimes get themselves or ourselves tied up in knots from a methodological point of view. And the paper is really a response to criticisms of work on the relationship between social inequality and health inequality, suggesting that um, you know we should be applying much more stringent, almost experimental-like methods to, to our research. But obviously, we can't do that. We have to do this type of research using observational data. We cannot randomly assign people to be exposed to poverty or discriminations and see what happens to them. Um, and using observational data, quantitative or qualitative, presents a lot of challenges. Um, but the paper basically argues that we can use um, approaches much more broadly across different methods to um, really use the massive body of evidence that suggests that social inequality is related to health inequality. And um, then to start, once we've understood um, and explained what the problem is, then develop methods to start looking at how to intervene, what, what actually works, which is a whole other area of science. And my colleague in, in Canada called Louise Pouvin, she distinguishes between the science of problems and the science of solutions. And these actually require different methods. So that's what that paper is, is all about. So uh, moving on to some other um, work that was grant supported, you're currently in the midst of a multi-million euro grant looking at gender and health inequalities. Love to hear what you're evaluating and learning and 
Sorry if it's a dopey question, but the word gender today is turbocharged such that I'm terrified of anything I say. <laughs> How does that narrative play into your research? Well, the gen so this is the Gendy project, it's called. It's very original. It involves four disciplines, and I represent epidemiology. My colleagues each represent sociology, economics, and demography. We're studying health inequality through a gender lens, as you mentioned, but also considering social class, ethnicity, etc. So we're taking this sort of intersecting um, approach to these different categories. And the way we have defined gender is as a hierarchical system of power between men and women. So we're not referring in this case, in this particular grant, to gender identities, which is, I think, where the polemic you're referring to comes from. Um, but of course, gender identities may also be social categories of relevance um, regarding health inequalities. What we're interested in in this research is to look at taking a life course approach to understanding how observed health differences between boys and girls, um, men and women, might be explained by gender dynamics through a number of different potential processes. So through things like how children are socialized, how assumptions transfer to children when they're growing up by their families, by the school environment um, might play out. Um, the labor market trends, for example, how they affect men and women. Um, and also important to, an important one is biases in the healthcare system, for example. So when it comes to ch childhood, we're examining child development and the way that children learn to relate to their bodies to see how they're affected by these categories of gender and class using qualitative and quantitative approaches. And we found that girls and boys learn to feel and express pain differently, for example. And this will have consequences on their relationships to their bodies and to doctors and to the healthcare system. Um, we're also interested in how the healthcare system might contribute to inequalities in prevention, diagnosis and follow-up between men and women, according to their social position and ethnicity. Um, and, you know, there are some examples of that that we are well known, but still a, a major problem. For example, data on which cardiovascular disease recommendations are based are still insufficiently representative of women. Um, so depending on the pathology, you might find that women or men are more advantaged or disadvantaged. So we're trying to unravel these different biases and, and understand them more deeply. Um, and this is a, a project based in France only. So we're using qualitative and quantitative data uh, to unravel things in the French context. When we were chatting, I mentioned uh, my love of aviation. I write articles for the aviation press for health issues for fellow pilots. And I wrote one once, I think it was called, it was a double, a double entendre, it was man flu. Um, so, you know, obviously flying and flu, um, double entendre there. I was quite proud of it, actually. But I made the point that there's a good biological reason why men have a much worse experience of infectious diseases like flu than, than women do. Boy, oh boy, did I get some interesting mail. The blokes who wrote to me were all, go, Jonathan, yay, you rock. The women pilots who wrote to me, oh, I think they wanted to take me around the back of the woodshed and have me done away with. So I, you said something there about the experience of pain. Let's just pick on one thing. 
tell us about the biological basis, the, the, the epidemiological evaluation of how people experience pain? Given the limitations, this is just in France, so on and so forth. Well, I mean, we're, we're really early on in the um, on this particular question, so I'm not going to be able to go into detail about the pain question, but let, let me get to what you were saying about uh, things like what you mentioned with regards to your aviation magazine. So there are things we need to unravel with regards to the biological differences between men and women, um, which um, may affect things like uh, in your propensity to experiencing certain types of infections in certain ways. And we know that these are, are related to things like the sex chromosome uh, differences, you know, the XX and the XY difference between the classic male-female um, genetic code. It, the, these, these are a, a biological basis for why certain uh, diseases may differ between men and women. But layering on top of that come along gender factors. Um, which might um, mean that women are more exposed to certain infections. So if we're taking, if we go to the COVID example, well, women are, are we're in more forward-facing, sort of person-facing jobs, which meant that they were probably more at risk of infection because they perform caring roles, be it in their jobs as teachers or as nurses or even at home um, and in the, the care service providing areas compared to men. So they were probably, and, and evidence shows uh, certainly for France and, and Switzerland uh, and other places where um, I was involved in some research, that women uh, were more likely to be infected um, with COVID. But, but then something a bit different happens when we start looking at severity of disease and mortality risk, which seems to pull in the other direction where women maybe are um, experiencing are not necessarily experiencing more severe levels of disease uh, than men, but rather things are pulling in the other direction. Maybe men are experiencing more severe disease than women and having a higher mortality rates. And here, could it be a biological susceptibility? Well, there is some evidence based on what you were saying to do with men's immune systems that could explain part of this. But other more maybe social gender factors, such as men's health behaviours, um, and um, the type of exposures that they would be uh, susceptible to um, that might lead them to uh, have a higher mortality rate. I think your, your article was probably quite an interesting one because it pulled, it might have uh, upset some people, but it will have been discussing something that could well have scientific basis. But I think there's nearly, when we're talking about men and women and disease, we're nearly always talking about a combination of biological and social phenomena. Absolutely. I was thinking back to my kids learning to drive and seeing what the insurance rate was going to be for my son to get in a motor car compared to my daughter. Um, <laughs> the most dangerous thing you can put in a car is a teenage boy. The next most dangerous thing that you can put in a car is two teenage boys. And, you know, there's truth in stereotypes to some degree, I guess. Um, I love that sort of stuff. So you mentioned COVID. You've looked at the COVID pandemic a fair bit and had a recent grant evaluating the so social epidemiology. 
I saw you published on socioeconomic vulnerability and access to healthcare during the first two waves. Can you share with us a, a bit more about uh, COVID from your perspective? It's once again in the news. Sure. Essentially, we saw very similar things things in France and in, in the study where I contributed with some colleagues from Geneva, which was, first of all, that um, in both cases, um, neighborhood, so area-based social disadvantage um, was associated with having higher rates of infection of COVID. Um, so the more socially deprived neighborhood you lived in, the more likely you are to live in crowded accommodation, to not be able to telework or be furloughed. And um, so this may well be the reason why uh, infection rates were higher in those places. The positivity rate was also higher in those um, depri more deprived neighborhoods. But importantly, the rate of testing was much lower. So, you know, we're seeing here a double burden where maybe people are not getting access to the testing that they need and also are, are more likely to be infected. Um, and in the Geneva situation, there was also um, a higher vulnerability for these um, neighborhoods to have a higher incidence of COVID-19 deaths. This is something we're still working on for France at the moment, but, you know, we're pretty much um, looking at very similar results. But, you know, um, when you work in the field of health inequalities and a new and emerging disease appears, you know there is a very strong chance that it will end up um, disproportionately affecting the most disadvantaged and poor amongst us. So looking forward towards any future pandemics, unfortunately, that might await us, for me, the real priority is dealing with the social inequality that leads to health inequality. And we knew that this was going to happen as we saw COVID um, establishing itself within different populations. So my position is still and always will be, I think, that we need to address the social inequality first and foremost, because that is going to lead to health inequality um, as we move forward and see uh, how to address future pandemics. Yeah. Moving on to... Uh, a different approach to this, you know, you're talking there about how we can, by by policy, by social issues, impact the way that um, threats to human health are dealt with. Let's turn it on its head and look at what people can do. You're involved in a grant from the Research Council of Norway, which addresses healthy choices. We all know that obesity, smoking, drug and alcohol abuse and a sedentary lifestyle compared to the blue zone approach leads to a shorter health span and lifespan. What did your work uncover? And as a doctor who's tried to practice what I preach, I've learned that preaching, quite frankly, is a complete waste of oxygen because <laughs> people just don't listen. <laughs> yes. Well, I completely agree with that point. And I would say that if anything, that is kind of what we're trying to establish. Um, so my involvement in this project is coming in as usual as the sort of social epidemiologist to come in and, and work in a project. Uh, our, the sort of point of us uh, being involved in this project is to show that what, as usual, one's social position, such as education or income or class, is related to your health outcome. And that if you adjust or take into consideration 
the classic risk factors for health. So, so those health behaviors you were talking about, uh, smoking, uh, drinking alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, diet. Well, you still do not really explain the relationship between the social determinant and the health outcome. Um, so it's, you know, my argument would be to say that, yes, health behaviors are, uh, if, you know, it, do relate uh, to your social environment and your health outcome, but they do not fully explain any uh, of these social patterned health things that we observe. Um, so they can be taken into account, but they cannot fully explain what's going on. So as you were saying, if you were preaching uh, and it's a waste of oxygen, then maybe we should turn to something that's a bit more systemic. Um, uh, so usually that's what we are brought in to show in, in many studies, is that health behaviors do not fully explain the social gradient in health. And that's not to say that we shouldn't do something about health behaviors, but it's that um, maybe they, even if everyone was stopped smoking and everyone ate wonderfully, that we still would see a relationship to the social determinants um, and, and health outcomes. And, you know, when it comes to health interventions on those behaviors, well, maybe the more systemic uh, environmental ones have more of a chance of working, like uh, in the mid-2000s, 2007 or 8, when the smoking bans came in across Europe, um, which... Um, might have had a bit more success than than what you were doing with your patients. Yeah, I um, interestingly, I know a lot of pubs in England uh, closed down when the smoking ban came in because you know people couldn't smoke when they were drinking and drinking dropped as well. Interesting. Well, they had to walk further to get a drink. So maybe um, maybe as a follow up to that you could speak a little bit about the program that you're developing that looks at health trajectories driven by social and psychosocial mechanisms in early life onwards. Is that that's germane to what we've just discussed, uh, influence people earlier in life? Yes, um, I think so. And, and actually, we can come back to the smoking point on, on this um, as well. So briefly, this work is about understanding that stressful aspects of our lives so things like living through adverse events uh, when you're a child things like maybe one of your parent passes away which is very difficult to do with or you experiencing neglect or, or other kinds of adversities in childhood um, these affect your biology as well so your stress response system so sort of these physiological responses we're having continuously as we interpret what's going on in our environment um, or, and may or feel more or less stressed. Well, these, the stress response system uh, can over time uh, wear you down different physiological responses in your body and, and lead people towards um, poorer health trajectories over time. There are ways now of considering, well, first of all, of course, trying to prevent that these um, conditions would occur at all. Um, and one of the prevention strategies, when we come back to the question of, of health behaviours, um, and this is work by one of my former PhD students, uh, it shows that um, people who take up smoking very early, so in their adolescent years, are much more likely to struggle to give up um, tobacco smoking 
uh, over time. And this is because of the sort of transforming adolescent brain and its likelihood to become much more addicted to nicotine. So if you can prevent somebody from starting smoking um, in those early years, then that goes a long way um, to, to making a, a positive impact. Even if they were to take up smoking later on, it would be just easier for them to, to stop. Um, so there are sort of sensitive periods of earlier development throughout childhood, early, very early childhood and adolescence, where certain types of events and certain types of interventions might make more sense um, in, in terms of trying to um, improve health trajectories later on and influence people um, all across their life course. Makes perfect sense. I guess this final question, uh, I can sort of hopefully predict what you might say. I always like to finish with this uh, same question. What would your three wishes be for the future of health in your field of expertise? My number one wish, and this is especially coming from working in the French context, is that the medical field, that um, medicine in terms of hospitals, healthcare systems, and so on, would really take on board that social determinants of health as a fundamental cause of health that can be modified and therefore integrate social determinants more clearly in training and in application and also in things like data collection. And I know this is much more likely to be the case in the UK because I think there's a longer tradition of it. But here in France, we're st when we talk about health, the social environment really doesn't um, come into it all that much. So I would love to see that as number one, my number one wish. Um, my number two wish would be, I do think there's, we, there's a lack of understanding that our biological systems adapt to our socially patterned environment. And that I think this is an obviously crucial point to human survival, but it makes sense to understand this within the healthcare system. Um, and especially during the COVID years, I would hear like, oh, we're seeing these differences between ethnic minority groups in the UK and in New Zealand and in Canada and all across the places where we measure these things that, that people from ethnic minorities have higher mortality rates from COVID. Um, and yet people were often attributing this to genetics, whereas I found it much more likely that what those people share across all of those different continents is that they are minoritized and discriminated against people who have experienced those discriminations all across their life courses. And that is much more likely to have affected their susceptibility to disease. Um, but it's a much more complex question. And I think it deserves to be better understood in, um, in the healthcare world. Finally, I do think that with the challenge we're facing at the moment with dealing with climate dysregulation, um, that social inequalities must be addressed simultaneously with any climate targets um, at the political and policy levels if we're to succeed to making progress without leaving anyone behind, because we know that these socially disadvantaged groups are much more susceptible to the adverse effects of climate change um, and all the health consequences of that. So I think that is a third wish. We really need to get to grips with both of those things simultaneously as, as joint targets for action, social inequalities and climate targets. Yeah, 
Um, well said. I mean, it's it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? That the people who make the decisions are not the people living in close proximity to their domestic animals, you know, cows and pigs and such like. They are not living in areas of the world where they are a threat from rising oceans. They are not living in a place where there's ready access to solar charging for their Teslas. They have to rely on burning fossil fuels. And um, the the arrogance of, of people who, who don't see that their actions have far-reaching consequences for everyone, including, drumroll please, themselves. So we need wise folk like you uh, beating the drum and frankly getting all of us to do our bit to you know to speak to the policy makers about what we need to do because as as those of us who care about human health uh, we don't want to see anyone suffer so sadly that's all we've got time for today but I'd like to thank you Dr. Michelle Kelly Irving for being with us today sharing your knowledge and frankly for the, for the research, the work that you're doing and promulgating. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks very much for having me. So folks, please subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Like us on social media and check out the archives for loads of prior episodes with guests every bit as fascinating as, as Michelle. And please join us next week for another amazing episode of the EMJ podcast. I'm sorry for all the hyperbole, but hey, I believe in it. Until then, I'm Jonathan Sakia. Thanks so much for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.